Good morning. It's been a while since Carol and I have been back. It's good to see uh, new faces and uh, a few old ones and more and more hair that looks like mine. Last time we were here, the Jaguars were no good. And Donna Deegan was a news anchor. Um, things change here. They change everywhere. But one thing does not change is that the Christ sits on the throne. The Lamb rules. And that is the hope of our life. Why a summer in the Psalms? Is it just convenient for guest preachers to pick their own psalm and swoop in here and whip out an oldie? I hope not. I hope not. When Keith and I talked about uh, us coming down and preaching this opening series, we talked about maybe teeing it up by suggesting to you that there's actually a reason that you should be in the Psalms. Not just periodically in the summer, but that you should live in the Psalms with your feet deeply planted in that book, which is kind of, which is kind of the center of the X. The Old Testament story meets the New Testament promises and that outflows into the gospel of the kingdom, right? But right in the middle, where it all intersects, are the Psalms. I was looking carefully at the music we sang this morning. Every single one of the songs we sang, all of them New Testament set, right? Every single one of them, almost every single line was from the Psalms. Now, why do we do that? Well, we do that because of Ephesians chapter 5. Would you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5? It's a New Testament book. It's not in the Psalms, just in case you didn't know that. Uh, and it's in the second half of the book of Ephesians. Ephesians, like all of Paul's letters, are books written with a, a middle point at which Paul says either therefore or since. And this is in the second half. After he has said, you, plural, you are elect from before the foundations of the world. Chapter 2, you are saved by grace. Chapter 3, you're a people gathered together from all sorts of different backgrounds. And it doesn't make sense that you should be one people, but you are. It's such a shock that even the angels in heaven are surprised by it. Chapter 3. Therefore, I want you to live a certain way, because you live for the display of the splendor of the God who has redeemed you. You're the display case that shows the world what the kingdom of God looks like. They don't know. You're the display. That's why your life matters so much. And so right in the middle of that second section, Paul says to us, chapter 5, I want you to be imitators of God as beloved children. I want you to walk 
in love. He uses a neat word, walk. And he's talking by walk, he's talking about lifestyle. Now we're going to skip down to verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the, the best use of the time. Literally, redeem. Redeem the time. Carve your life out so that it's productive, profitable time, not wasted time. Redeem the time because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't get drunk with wine, that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Pause. Now what happens in verse 19 to 21 is a series, for those of you who are English nerds, a series of participles, all of them present participles, all of them meaning, I want you to do this and keep on doing it and make it a, a routine course of your life. Okay? So here we go. Uh, but be filled with the Spirit. Number one, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Number two, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Number three, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and submitting, continually ongoing submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And I'm always struck because in the next verse, he says, wives, submit to your husbands, but he's already told husbands and wives, submit to one another. So then he unpacks that in marriage and in childhood and in the workplace. Now that's where we're going to go. And obviously the focus we're going to have here is verse 19. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Why? Why do that? Does that mean I walk up to Parker if I see him after him, him skipping church this morning and say to him, Parker, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Don't forget that. And then just scoot up. Or do I just, you know, walk up to any one of you that I haven't ever met and say to you, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done wonders things. Is that what it means to address one another in psalms? And by the way, the, the words for hymns and spiritual songs don't mean three different categories of music. They just mean three different words to describe music that always, always, always is directed to God, about God. The worship music of the church has always been, from the Psalms all the way to today, to God, we're praising Him. And it is about God, about His works, His deeds, His character, His amazing forgiveness. His remarkable life. So all three words, but Psalms is the first one. So addressing one another, does that mean we just pull out our memory of Psalms that we might have learned periodically or a new one you learned this week? And you just start talking to the person you've never met before and quoting the Psalm? Well, it generally isn't terribly effective when you do that, but it does have some wisdom attached to it. I, I want you to think about this. My 
generation, I'm, I'm about the same age as Tim Keller was when God called him home this week. Most pastors, my generation, have always fixated on doctrines. We've concluded these truths, and then we live out of these truths. The rising generation, which this congregation is well made of, the rising generation has recognized that those truths sometimes enter your brain through your ears and get about here and never sink any deeper. And you recognize and you insist that we recognize that the Christian faith is to, is to grip our hearts and shape all of the experiences of our lives. You know what the Psalms are? The Psalms are highly experiential. They take the doctrine of God, the doctrine of forgiveness, the doctrine of the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ, the doctrine of justice, and they overlay it on top of what you are experiencing in your life. This, this past month, Carol and I in Charlotte have been dealing with a Ukrainian refugee, woman, two little kids, had been the, at least verbally, physically abused wife of a man who was into alcohol in a big way. Her life was difficult when she was raised on the border of Russia. When she went to college in Russia, though she was Ukrainian, it was tough then because of who she was married to and what her life looked like. Now add to that being a refugee, coming first to Canada, then to the United States. We're welcome, we, we, you know, we welcome refugees, you're on your own. <laughs> that's about three weeks later, right? That's hard to do, right? She speaks Russian, she speaks Ukrainian, she speaks English, she gets a job as a translator. With a degree, she gets a job as a translator. Fantastic. She can work for all kinds of companies. Uh, what does she make, Carol? 20 bucks an hour? 20 bucks an hour. And then you got to pay taxes. Then you got to rent. And rent in Charlotte averages for a two-bedroom apartment about $1,750 a month. Ooh, that's tough. She's still struggling with having divorced her husband who's already celebrating his new girlfriend, but he keeps calling her just on a regular basis to make her feel bad about it. And imagine the, the experience of being a follower of Jesus, but living all of that stuff. We need her. I don't drop a psalm on her head and say, blessed are you if you walk with God. That, that almost sounds like mockery. But here's a psalm that you probably have never used this way. She and I talked about this the last time we were together as a family. God, God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the evil what they deserve. How long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exalt? They pour out arrogant words and they boast. You imagine how heartwarming it is 
people of God over the millennia have wrestled with the same stuff she's wrestling with. And her God has always, always heard them. She can get to the end of that psalm, an end that says, the Lord our God will care for them. She can get there because she knows it's, it's been God's handiwork before and he will be there again. We are called to bear witness and we do that in the Psalms. I think it's a voice for lonely souls. We're living in a very, very individualistic world, aren't we? You may not even know this, but there's, there's never been in all of history in all the millennia of human history, anywhere in the world, there has never been a culture that celebrates the individual as much as this one. In America, 21st century, there's never been a culture that cares less about communal living than this one. This one prioritizes the wealth of the individual, the opportunity of the individual, the freedom and license of the individual to do whatever she or he wants to do. We are an individual worshiping culture. Everything in the Bible is not. Everything in the Bible is communal. You don't determine what's right and wrong based on what's right or wrong for you. You determine what's right or wrong based on whether it honors your God and blesses your people. It's a totally different worldview. Do you know how hard it is to come out of an individualistic background, which is the air we breathe, right? It's the water we drink. They sprinkle it on our food in the morning and McDonald's. They feed us individualism. The TV piles it on us. We, we can't escape it. Do you know how hard it is to come into Jesus Christ and come into the body of believers and set that aside in order to be a member of a family? Do you have any idea how hard that is? We are people. Many of you have experienced this. You're lonely souls. You're looking for comfort. And you come into a church, and there's a lot of great experiences, but you're still alone. Or at least you still feel alone. Because we live and breathe alone. But then with your people, you begin to learn a new language. I'm struck by the idea of a lingua franca. You guys know that term? I, I had to look it up. A lingua franca. Uh, in, in political and global terms, lingua franca are common languages that a lot of people work with. So if, if, if I want to go talk to somebody who's a Ukrainian, and I don't speak Ukrainian and they don't speak English, we both might get by if we both know Russian. Well, there are three common lingua franca languages in the world. English, Spanish, and French. 
If you're in North Africa, most countries speak French. Uh, in, in Europe, most countries speak English or, or, or French. A lot of them speak Spanish. Carol and I were just in, in Britain, and we hopped over the, the channel and had the opportunity to preach in Paris on Easter Sunday. We didn't have any trouble. We didn't know French, but most people know English. It's a kind of a lingua franca, a common language that allows people from different cultures to meet in the middle. But the concept came from Bible, from Bible translators. If I want to bring the Bible into the Quechua language of Central America, way up in the mountains, these little tribes, they speak their own language. When you first go there, nobody knows any of the language of, of English, and nobody knows the English people don't know any of the language of the Quechuan. But we figure out, man, man, woman, feet, head. We, we, we build a vocabulary of maybe 10 or 20 words. And with the 10 or 20 words, we begin to add 10 more a week or 20 more a week. And before you know it, we're actually populating a dictionary. The lingua franca are those original words that we use to connect with each other. You see, does that make sense? Okay, the sounds are the lingua franca of the Christian life. I may not understand what it's like to be a refugee from Ukraine who suffered in the Ukrainian-Russian war, who's dealing with an abusive husband and, and refugee status and financial ruin, but my sounds do, my thought does. And she and I can connect with each other, and we can talk about her experiences and her burdens and her hurts and her fears and God's answers by soaking together in the sounds. And that's what I mean when I say to you that we'll live our lives in the sounds. Now, again, how do, how, how do we do that? I, I'm not suggesting that Christ Church each east. Everybody suddenly is assigned to read the Psalms, and next week we all start greeting each other with a very, with a different psalm. And we test each other in memory. Man, my goodness, my earliest memory of the Psalms was Psalm 84 after I broke my grandmother's window. She made me sit out in the garden and memorize the whole psalm before I could eat it. That's a long psalm. I was hungry. That's, that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is this normal conversation that is, let's start with the easy stuff, saturated in the music we just sang this week. It really helps if the music we sing is annotated so we know it is from these psalms that God's people have, have often and frequently sung. But it's easy to start with the easy one. Man, head, feet. Psalm 23. How much experience can you get out of Psalm 23 that taps into the heart of people who are scared? The Lord's my shepherd. I, I, I won't lack anything. Even if I walk through the valley of the shadow of dying, I won't fear evil. And by the way, when the psalm says, I it applies to I, but it also always applies to we. 
carry you a long way. You know what I read for many people before they're going to go under the knife for surgery next week or the next day? I often read them the psalm that taught our little children many years ago how to pray a prayer. Many of you know, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, and then somebody interrupts me and says, oh, that's morbid. Yeah, yeah. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when, they, when their grain and wine abound, O oh Lord. In peace, I will both lie me down and sleep. Because you, O oh Lord, make me dwell in safety. What a lovely last thought to have before they hit the plunger on the anesthetic. You go to sleep before surgery and you're remembering you, O Lord, alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Psalm 4. See, it's, it's the normal conversations that we have, but if we're immersed in the experiential realities of the Psalms, we get to share what we've remembered together. We get to share that, and we get to share it with one another at moments when others are having struggles and experiences. Second Corinthians 1 is the same thing. You can use Second Corinthians 1. doesn't have to be a psalm. If you struggled, then God comforted you. If God encouraged God's economy doesn't stop with getting you through the darkness. He now wants you to comfort others with the same comfort that he comforted you with so that they can comfort others. That's the experiential gospel economy. If you've received it, you give it away. But the Psalms are kind of a lingua franca that taught us how to do that. Now, just a couple of words about the specific text that we've got. He says, don't, don't get drunk with wine. Don't don't let the thing that motivates your spirit be an anesthetic that removes your wisdom from you. But be filled with the Spirit. When the Spirit takes hold of you, you begin to speak the Spirit's language. You begin to talk as the Spirit talked to Jesus to walk Him through this cup that I have to drink, I will be bound. It was the Spirit that talked him through it. He wants us to be addressing one another in these, these, these ways so that we make melody in our hearts to God. These things that we share communally are what allows us to live in wisdom. So, let's get down to the, to the bottom line. I, I want you to think about what's going to happen this summer. You're going to have preacher after preacher come through here. They're all going to preach on different songs. There probably isn't going to be a single thread that unites them all together as if they were all key. You're not going to have that. But you're going to have the lingua franca, the common language of the song. Here's what I would like to suggest that you do. If you're note takers, take notes. 
If you're not note takers, take note up here. If you're not a note taker and you try to take note up here and you're my age, kiss it off. You're going to need other people to help you remember because your rememberer doesn't work as well. But keep these things alive. As the music is played, keep the, the song in your heart. I, I'm, I'm on day 99 in Duolingo in Spanish. I'm working hard to learn Spanish. My problem is the rememberer doesn't work, but I'm, I'm working hard at it. But you know what? A lot of what I'm learning now on day 99 with Duolingo, I already learned 10 years ago with this little silly CD called Rush Hour Spanish. I used to play it, play it in my in my car, CD player, and that thing would play, and I would learn all kinds of songs, songs about la pasta de dientes, the toothpaste. I, 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 I had all the songs memorized, and if I was trying to talk with somebody in Spanish, I would have to hit the pause button, think about the song, hum the lyrics, and then I would have an answer. Songs do that, right? A, B, C, D, E, F, G, that's how we learn the alphabet. You probably know a dozen songs from commercials right now. That's how they sell product to you. They get into your head. Get the songs, the ones that these dear people read, the ones that are printed in your songs. Get them into your head. Meditate on them. Listen to them again. Hum them. Whistle them. Whatever you do to make the music of the songs of God, a part of your routine. Because you know what's going to happen next? That's going to become part of your language and your interaction one with another. And then work on that. Work on being communicative one with another with the language of the experiences of the people of God whom he has answered all through the century. Number two, it doesn't have to be just stuff you learn in worship. I think, and I'm talking to the elders now, I think the elders need to be really proficient with their use of the Psalms. I, I, I think using the Psalms when you visit with people is just an extraordinary thing. When I deal with people that are really agonizing over rest, I often go to Psalm 92. It's titled, A Psalm for the Sabbath Day. It allows me to be happy in the morning, and to be restful at night. And by the way, it's got a great ending. Psalm 92 ends with, with a reminder that there's still value to old people. I happen to kind of like this one. Um, Psalm 92 ends with this. The righteous flourish like a palm tree. They grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. And they still bear fruit in old age. They are full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock. There's no unrighteousness in him. I love that one. When I talk to people who, like me, retired nine years ago and got bored in 15 minutes, and then I have to figure out, what am I going to do with my life? I'm called to bear fruit. I can't do it at 60 miles an hour anymore. But I can still bear fruit. And so can you. The Psalms, right? Okay, 
So if we're going to do it based out of worship, if we're going to do it because our elders or our deacons or our small group leaders pick up a psalm and want to use it to help us remember that all of us, even with diverse backgrounds, with backgrounds of abuse or backgrounds of different nationalities or backgrounds of different languages, or you used to be Catholic or you used to be Jewish, but now you're here. I, I don't care about the background. God is making you into one people with one common language, and it is the language of the Word of God and the lingua franca that we can use to start with on the song. Okay, now let's go rapidly into what some of them might do. You want to struggle with people who don't know how to make decisions? I remember reading uh, the not, not, not very happy book, the book by J.D. Vance, the guy who's running for senator, just got elected senator, I can't remember, up, up, up in uh, Ohio. He wrote a book called Hillbilly Elegy about growing up in Kentucky with addicted parents and grandparents, all of them, all of them addicts. And he described the life, and he did a lot of analysis about poverty. And he, he writes about the fact that he got to young adulthood, and then he got into adulthood, he had no idea how to make a good decision. He thought that when you bought a car, you just found the one that you liked, and you bought it, whether you could afford it or not, and if you lost it, you bought another one. Didn't know that there was a process. You know where he learned how to make a decision from his drill instructor in the Marine Corps. Now, I'm not saying drill instructors don't help you make wise decisions. I'm saying that's a different lingua franca than this one. They use different language. They have different values. You make different choices based on those values. Where do you go to learn how to make decisions? I would suggest you start with Psalm 1. Blessed, how fruitful is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of the mocker. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. On God's law he meditates. He's like a tree planted by streams of water. And the operative principle is his life bears fruit that bless others. That's how we make decisions. i got to make a decision that honors God, that blesses others, not just me. There's a couple of good anchors for decision making, don't you think? Or, or Psalm 2. If, if you're one of these children of God and you're living in a world that's kind of eating you alive and it feels very much like you're losing, there's a psalm for that. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The authority figures in our world set themselves and take counsel together against the Lord and against his Christ. But the one who sits in the heavens laughs and holds them in derision. He says, I put my king on Zion, my holy hill. No matter what the war is like culturally, no matter what you think is going on in the world, the Lamb is going to win. No, in fact, he has already won. That's a pretty good anchor. 
dealing with those sorts of things. How about how to complain when your life is not being managed by the Almighty the way you would like it to be managed? Anybody here ever been there? Of course, it's a common experience. We want things to happen a certain way, but we don't see the backstory or the future, and we don't understand from this perspective what we have to go through in order for our hearts to be softened, our faith to be strong, our lives to be connected. Carol and I spent two and a half years, three years, 20 years ago in Charlotte working in a church that was going through some really difficult times, almost killed them. The church wanted, some of them, all the elders wanted to make me the senior pastor. Most of the congregation did not because I didn't have a PCA background. So on Sunday mornings, we'd get to church and there would be petitions. Can you imagine? Petitions outside the doors. People signing up pro-John, anti-John. And the danger is, you stand there and you look at people and say, oh, you cotton picker, you're the anti-John. I just was at your house. You know how that goes. That, that's, that's what happened, right? I can't think of anything good that happened from that experience, except softened my heart. Gave me an incredibly deeper appreciation for my wife's love and support. And oh, by the way, I met Keith Hicks. And so we brought him here. And then he started here with the elders that are leaving. Only God could do that. Only God could walk me over coals to get to the point where he connected all the dots to plan a series of churches in Jacksonville based on a relationship that was formed in hardship with a whiny pastor. Because there was no whiny. Right? How, how, how do I get perspective about complaints with the Lord? Take a look at Psalm 77 for a minute. The Lord says some remarkable things in Psalm 77. I cry aloud to God, I aloud to God, and He will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without weary. I cry out, Oh God, where are you? When I remember God, I moan. Verse 10, I will appeal to this to the years of the right hand of the Most High. In other words, when I'm feeling like I'm all alone and he's silent and he doesn't hear me, then I'm going to remember all the years when he did. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. I will remember your wonders of old. If I can't remember your wonders of old in my life, I'm going to remember your wonders of old in the book. I will ponder your work. I'll meditate on your deeds. I'll remember your way, O oh God, is holy. Who, who is like you? And then I will praise. How do I get through the days when I want to complain? Well, I tell them. And then I remember. And then I pray. Think that works? Think that's a good recipe for the Christian life? 
When all the wheels go off the rails, you bet. You bet. In fact, remembering and forgetting are major words in Scripture. And they're almost never words that apply to individuals. Because memory, especially when you get older, memory is fate. Stuff leaks out of your brain. But it doesn't leak out of a community. Don and I have shared cancer. When you go through cancer and you've walked through it and talked with another cancer survivor together and you've prayed together, you, you remember not, you just don't remember when you were in the hospital. You remember another brother or another sister who's been through it. You remember together how God never failed. How God walked with you through the hard days. How God walked with you through the initial cancer diagnosis that felt like you were getting kicked by a mule and how God got you to the other side when you rested in his blessed promises. Remembering is a communal affair. And you have to help each other remember. That's speaking to one another with psalms. How about dealing with your sin? I was reading the other day that a lot of people hate to talk about forgiveness. You know why? They hate to talk about forgiveness because it requires them to admit that they did sin. It did, it, I mean, that's an astonishing thing to me. It's, it's an absolutely astonishing thing. But you see, Christian faith is based not on fake it till you make it. Behave yourself until you really behave. No, that's not the Christian. Christian faith is based on truth. One of my favorite power quotes. Cheer up. You're a lot worse than you know you are. And God's grace is a lot greater than you can even imagine. Tell the truth about yourself and celebrate what God does. Psalm 32, blessed. You know, blessed, that's not just something you throw over people like salt. Blessed is that statement that says, I will enable you to flourish like a palm tree of the desert, to grow like a, like a plant that's well cared for. I want you to flourish. Blessed, I want you to flourish. The one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, not covered up, but covered over by the blood of the Lamb. Blessed, you flourish when you own your sin and then he forgives it. And then you live in the freedom of being forgiven. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I'll never forget the story of David and Bathsheba. What a, what a wretched story. And of course, in America, we think it's about consenting adults having an illicit affair. It's got nothing to do with that. It's got to do with a king taking what should not have been his and was not his. And he did it by abusing his authority. And he did it with the wife of one of his mighty men of valor who put his life on the line to protect the king. How'd you like to be that king when Nathan the prophet says, 
your command. You did this. You can't blame Bathsheba. You did this. Say, don't drop this, Miss Dickey. Write a psalm, dude, and then sing it in worship. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. By this time, the whole, the whole of Israel knew what he had done. They knew what he had done with Bathsheba. They knew what he had done to kill her husband. They knew what he had done to cover it up. They knew what he had done. And he has to stand there with them and sing of his sin. I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Behold, you delight in truth. Hide your face from my sins, blot out my iniquities, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. For the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God. You will not despise it. Well, I wouldn't want to have to live that journey, but you know what? And so do you. That's what it's like to be a child of God, a son and a daughter of the King, and then do the stuff that you and I do so easily with our mind, with our mouth, with our lives. And people see us and they say, and you're a Christian? And then we don't, maybe we don't sing with music, but we look them in the eye and say, yeah, you know what, you're right. God desires truth. I'm so sorry. God says, he will bless me if I have a soft and contrite spirit and he will forgive me. And then, once again, I will rejoice in the Lord. And you know what? That could be your story too. How great is it to live in that song? How to raise kids, especially if you think you failed. God blessed us with four kids, 12 grandchildren. One of our kids has had a long journey with struggle, long defiance against the Lord, long anger for me. It all started about the time that her mom got sick and then died. It's a hard journey, right? Hard journey. I can't imagine what she thinks when she thinks I was supposed to have been a mother and I didn't do this or I did that. I've encouraged her several times to look to Psalm 78, which is a psalm for the people who are responsible to raise up the next generation. I will open my mouth in a parable. I'll utter dark sayings from of old things we've heard and known that our fathers have told us. We're not going to hide these things from our children. We're going to tell them to the next generation. The glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. And then he goes on for about 20 verses talking about the wonders He has done is that He forgave us for being a wretched people. 
and he still loves us. How great to be a parent and to learn that you don't have to be perfect. You have to be forgiven. And you have to be willing to pass on truth and honesty and confession and yes, forgiveness. And for America, how in the world can we trust our authorities when they all seem to be so incredibly wretched? Wretched leadership. Wretched governance on every conceivable level. Do you know what the number of people who trust government is today? I think it's in the negatives. But I don't think you can get negatives from a poll. So I know it's in the single digits. Why? Well, not because of policies. It's not the policy. It's the people. It's the people. How do you deal with that when you're a child of God and he says to you, honor the king, pray for your president, Pray as the elder did this morning. Pray for those that are charged with God. How do you do that? Well, you do that in the Psalms. Psalm 110 is a great one. It appears all over the Bible. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. That doesn't sound like America. No, 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 no. You know what that is? That's a statement to you. You're not first of all American. You're not first of all from whatever country you come from. You're first of all his. And he is your king. You should expect earthly kings to fail. They have always failed. His is the only governance that you can trust. He is the only one who does justice and combines it with mercy. The problem is not that we have bad leaders. The problem is that we expect them to be good. They can't be. They're broken. They're sinful. They're motivated by self. In an individualist, individualistic country, they're not as concerned with the common good as they are with getting reelected. They're not as, as, as concerned with justice for the, for the vulnerable as they are with power for the self. Why would you be surprised by that? You want justice? You go to the Psalms of justice. You read Psalm 110. You read Psalm 94. And you say, as we have said to people, in our ministry, your justice, you go to Jesus. Jesus brings justice to this world. Maybe not today. Maybe not tomorrow. But the cross settled the issue. Judgment belongs to him. You rest in him. But they might kill him. Yep, they might. Revelation 11 says it pretty explicitly. There's going to be two witnesses and the, and the beast from the sea is going to slay them both. But then God's going to raise them up and he's going to do justice no matter what. So cling to him. 
You see, in other words, living in the Psalms means living within the narrative of Scripture because you trust the God who wrote the book, who secured the victory, and who promises that he will hold us closely. Have fun in summer in the Psalms. Let's pray. Father, bless us so that we can be a blessing. Encourage us with your word so that we can be an encouragement of it. Thanks for giving us a common language that we can share, the language of the Psalms. Bless every preacher that comes through here this summer. Bless them to make your people here know how good it is to live with you. Bless Keith and Kim and their kids. May they know the blessing of rest even as they